Hello, my friends. Welcome to Podcast Coffee and Books. We have a a nice long episode for you today, so let's get into it. Uh, The episode today is called Bullshit Jobs, and it is by the author. i go back to my top of my notes here, by David Graeber. Before we begin, uh, first things first, just want to say, Happy New Year, no matter where you're at and celebrating. Hope you stay safe. And two, also, uh, just want to, full disclosure, my political ideologies are private, and I do not wish to share them in this podcast. However, I do wish to say beforehand that I do tend to agree with this author on a lot of points. Um, However, I do not agree with everything, but I do want to say beforehand that I did enjoy this book just because it is so different, and this author does not present a solution to these problems, but he just rather is presenting the problems to be discussed and to be debated. All right, with that being said, let's get into it. Uh, so I have a lot of notes here, so we're just going to go down the list and read them to you guys, and then we're going to talk about them as we kind of go along. All right. When asked if your job makes a meaningful contribution to the world, more than a third of people, 37%, believe it does not. This varies by country. A bullshit job is defined as any position where one is paid money to do a meaningless task or unnecessary task. The employee itself cannot justify the existence of the job. The neoliberal, or free market, has dominated the world since the days of Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Uh, Neoliberal rhetoric was always about the magic of the free marketplace and placing efficiency over all other values. The overall effect of the free market is that policies um, have actually slowed down economic growth everywhere except for places such as China and India. In most wealthy countries, for the first time in centuries, younger people can expect to lead less prosperous lives than their parents did. Uh, But both the private and public sector have seen an increase in bullshit jobs. Initially, you have places such as the Soviet Union, which were based on communism. And we see cycles of this that even um, are relevant today. But a great example in this book is that in the Soviet Union, jobs were created just to say that everyone would be employed. A great example of this is the supermarket example. In the Soviet Union, someone who wanted to purchase a rare commodity such as meat would have to talk to no less than three people to purchase meat products. In other words, it wasn't just as simply as going to a butcher. You would have to talk to someone who would get a butcher who would cut the meat and then someone else would weigh it and someone else would check you out of your, you know, like, you know, for the as a cashier, and someone else would bag it, etc., etc., etc. In other words, multiple people you had to talk to, um, and then bureaucracy. And, and that's how jobs were created, essentially, in the Soviet Union. Everyone had a job, but not everyone was working. All right, let's get keep continuing on. A shit job is a different than a bullshit job. A shit job is a necessary job, but the person doing that job would be treated like shit. A great example I like to give is people who are in the service industry, people who are like waiters, waitresses, people who are working in an industry that serves other people, like such as janitorial crews, people who are maids, cleaners, uh, school teachers are not part of this. But I like to just give the example that many people across a wide variety of industries are treated like crap. This does not necessarily mean that their jobs are crap. It means that they're being treated like crap. But what they're doing is considered something that is of value and is important. All right. Men are more likely than women to feel that their job is pointless. And why is this? Um, One could say that women work more in types of positions that care about other people and therefore drive more value from this work. And therefore men who are not doing this type of work tend to feel 
more that their jobs are pointless and that we see that people derive a value from caring from other people. All right. Um, five types of bullshit jobs exist. We have what are called flunkies, goons, duct tapers, box tickers, and taskmasters. We're going to now talk about each of them. A flunky is someone who does a meaningless job and is typically part of an entourage. They are there for the prestige of someone else. In Victorian times, for example, you would have a person who would go along the side of a carriage and look for bumps in the road. Um, This was their sole job as a servant. And in modern terms, this would be the equivalent of a high-powerful CEO's personal assistant or secretary. Um, A lot of the time, a CEO, for instance, can answer his own emails or write his own policies and do what needs to be done and send it out. However, you have a personal assistant now, and it is seen as mainly seen as prestige. And a personal assistant, his sole purpose might be there to help and assist um, like the CEO, but in reality, their job is a type of job where they're there to prop up the other person and make them look more prestigious. Okay, next is a goon. A goon is a type of position similar to an enforcer. A king cannot exist without soldiers, and then soldiers cannot exist without an army. However, if every country in the world decided we did not need an army, then there would be no need for an army in the first place. We only have armies to protect ourselves from other armies. A goon is a type of position. For example, if you go to a casino, I would argue that a pit boss is a type of goon. Their sole purpose for being there is to make sure that people aren't breaking the rules. They're a soldier in in terms of how someone would view a casino. Um, So why does this job exist? It exists because they need to protect the casino. Why did I need to protect the casino? Because the casino is making profits, and a, a goon is a type of enforcer, making sure that that person is not breaking the rules. All right, so the next type of bullshit job is a duct taper. Duct tapers only exist to fix a fault in an organization. For example, a software developer might focus on building a new technology to make their work more efficient. But if he spent more time fixing the current technology, that is not working. Um, A great example would be if things were done right in the first place, there would be no need to have someone duct tape it or fix it constantly. And sometimes businesses or organizations see duct taping as what they're supposed to do, because if you're constantly applying duct tape, you can constantly, uh, you know, make work for your employees and constantly milk what a contract is worth. So the idea of someone constantly fixing another person's problems is seen as relevant today. Um, Next, we have box ticking. Box ticking is typically more bureaucratic. I'm sure as most of you would probably already guess, but it's a way for a company to typically gather information when it could have spent time doing something that was already necessary for the company. great example is a leisure coordinator. Leisure coordinator, for instance, gathering surveys or information on a cruise ship from other people about what type of leisure they want to spend their time doing. That money that is spent collecting and gathering that information could be better spent in actually giving more resources to people who want more leisure on a cruise ship. So... That is a great example of box ticking. Uh, Lastly, we have what are called taskmasters. And taskmasters have two types of styles. The first type of style is to assign work to others. It is the exact opposite of flunkies. It's unnecessary superiors rather than unnecessary subordinates. So in a flunky, we have someone who is an unnecessary subordinate. They're doing a work, like I said, to prop up a CEO or someone of higher importance. 
But then there's also the opposite, which is this, the taskmaster. Essentially, they're assigning roles to employees who already know what they're doing. They're typically middle management types of people and are typically seen as unnecessary, but are only there just to ensure that the employees that are subordinates are doing their actual work. But typically, these type of taskmasters don't typically have work themselves. Uh, type 2, they enjoy creating, uh, taskmasters enjoy creating bullshit tasks for others. So in order to appear as if a taskmaster has worked, they'll often create bullshit tasks for subordinates to do. A great example of this is restocking a shelf after you've already restocked it. You know, this is something that is seen as, you know, uh, working for the sake of working. All right. And then those are all the examples of what the types of bullshit jobs are. But there is a bonus example I'd like to give. It's called a flat catcher. A flat catcher is someone who is designed to listen to complaints but do nothing to fix them. It is typically a shit job, but it is not a bullshit job because it serves the purpose of venting frustration for people. So, for instance, I at one point worked as a box office employee, and you would often have people who are frustrated and would need to vent that they are having trouble purchasing tickets. This would be someone venting their steam to you, and you serve the purpose of being there to calm that person down. All right. Economies around the world have increasingly become mentions for producing nonsense and bullshit jobs. There are many, many multitudes of reasons for this, which we can maybe touch on later. But what you need to know is that increasingly economies, and not just in the United States, but everywhere around the world, have become an engine for producing more and more of these dummy-like jobs. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it was assumed that neoliberal market or the free market reforms were supposed to have an increase in jobs. What we have seen is that most places around the world are now more closely resembling what the Soviet Union was like, which is now assigning multiple types of jobs, even if they're not necessary to people around the world. The nature of employment has changed a lot in the last 100 years. We've had a rising service economy, a steady decline of farming and manufacturing, and an increase in services. What the service economy is, a great example would be an Uber driver, someone who offers transportation from one place to the next. This is a service you are providing for another person. Uh, there has been a steady decline in farming and manufacturing for different reasons. Uh, one of these reasons you could argue is automation. Jobs that are automated are making manufacturing you know, cheaper to do if a robot com completes the task rather than a person, and therefore there's less people working in manufacturing. And the same goes for farming as well. There's not necessarily a less demand for farming. There's more people than ever and that need food. So why would there be less farming jobs? Because science is making, or automation, I should say, is making uh, jobs for farmers more efficient at collecting food. And therefore, there's less of a need for farmers. Okay. It is thought of originally that these jobs were initially exported overseas, and this has proved to be a myth. They're actually decreasing in other countries as well. If you're from the United States, you've probably heard before about how jobs such as auto manufacturers are being constantly exported overseas. They're doing this because it's cheaper labor and they can get away with breaking the rules easier and making a product for you know a cheaper and more efficient means for the company, but not necessarily is it good for the United States that a corporation such as Ford is sending their workers overseas. But this is actually proven to be a myth. Um, it is actually decreasing in other countries as well. Um, if you go around the world, you can actually see that places that are manufacturing 
components such as cars are actually decreasing in number for the number of people working in those industries. And this is, again, also because of automation. All right. There has been a change in attitudes from the United States in, since the 1980s. A lot of this stems from politics, but if you are familiar with the United States and politics, you are probably familiar with that a conservative view has been that it is your fault when you are poor, and in reality, people need to pick themselves by their bootstraps, and in reality, the world is a very complicated place, and people are poor for a variety of reasons, not all of which is their fault. The idea is that people can, and supposedly in the United States, pick themselves up and work for a better life. Um, this has been proven to be harder than it is, especially in increasing years, uh, but the idea is that our world is primarily shaped by this factor now, which is that between the left and the right in the United States, politically wise, the right typically views handouts as a bad thing because people would be less likely to work, um, and which will debunk that myth later on. One major factor in the healthcare system in the United States is the elimination of our current system could potentially unemploy millions of people. This was a major factor that shaped the Affordable Care Act. Obama has gone on record and said this, President Obama. Uh, so I thought this was very fascinating. That This is a factor I never even thought about when I was uh, listening in 2008 to how this program was being shaped. But yes, it is a major factor that has shaped it, is that millions of people work in healthcare in the United States. And as more and more people work in healthcare, it is less likely that the system will change because more and more people are dependent upon the system for work. And that is one major decision on how the Affordable Care Act was shaped. There are two arguments against bullshit jobs, or rather two things that people think bullshit jobs are actually created by, and we're going to debunk both of these. Globalization renders the production process so complicated that we need more office workers to administer it. Is type of um, argument number one, and type of argument number two is that bullshit jobs exist because of an increase in government regulation. As I said, both of these are wrong. A great example I'm going to give is about universities. Since 1985-2005, tuition at universities has skyrocketed. The overall teachers have remained constant at universities. You know, there has been a, a slight increase in teachers. But the administrative staff at all universities, public and private, have ballooned during this time. The number of administrators have increased twice as fast as private universities. Uh, sorry, yeah, the number of administrators has also increased twice as fast at private universities rather than public. So it is not due to government interference that an administrative staff is ballooning at a university. So uh, that debunks the idea that an increase in government regulation is creating that and also debunks that uh, private sector and public sectors are creating, um, you know, they're both creating bullshit jobs. It's not one or the other, it's both of them. All right, continuing forward, the number of, let's see, a reduction in work hours would be the quickest way to save the earth from global warming. When you think about it, millions of people every day go to work, right? Makes sense. Now they have to have transportation to work. This transportation to work is having a really big impact on the global environment. So if all of a sudden the work week was reduced, let's say to 15 hours a week instead of 40, you would have a massive decrease in global warming, uh, mainly because a lot of 
uh, factors like uh, that are creating global warming would be decreasing, such as the consumption of fossil fuels. Economists predicted long ago that the work week should be shortened to 15 or 20 hours a week and or four days a week with four months vacation time. Science has proven this has been possible, but we increasingly tell ourselves that we should be working 40 hours a week. Why do we do this? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, primarily because we see value in people who work and we see less value in people who don't work. But if, why do we see this as a myth that we should work 40 hours a week? Well, part of the reason is that there's this cycle that we think is necessary. Consumerism. We think consumerism is to blame for why we work 40 hours a week. You know, some people think we work 40 hours a week so that we have access to getting, for instance, food delivered anytime we want, like, such as the service economy, or to make things, uh, manufacture things for more people, a.k.a. consumerism. But the reality is we don't need to work 40 hours a week to produce this type of consumerism. Uh, yes, consumerism would go down if we were to work less hours, but the idea behind it is we don't have to work 40 hours a week. We are choosing to work 40 hours a week. Okay. For much of human history, people have gone into debt over getting a loan for a funeral or paying for a wedding. This is something that I have never thought about before, but makes complete sense. So just a fun fact there. Uh, one might say that those who benefit society should be paid should not be paid too well as a perversion of egalitarianism. There's a very famous formula in this book that basically says the more you are doing something you enjoy, the less likely you're going to be paid to do it. And I have found in my experience that tends to be true. If you enjoy something, society is genuinely seeing that as something you should be doing for free. A uh, great example would be art. People see art as a hobby now, more or less, but not as a career choice. Um, this is, again, a perversion of egalitarianism, which we can get into at a later time. Okay, there's a moral philosopher, G.A. Cohn, who argued the case should be made for equality of income for all members of society based on certain logic. There are six points to this logic, but I find that it is very complicated, so I'm going to skip over that part. But I recommend reading about his six points, as I find that they are very, very informative. Um, it's just something that I think is too complex to break down right now. All right. Eventually, we get into where economists come from in this book, and they come from theology, believe it or not, which is something of, again, a surprise to me, but it makes complete sense now that I know the history behind how we view our attitudes of work. Essentially, in the Middle Ages, you would have people such as theologists who were determining what type of human beings should be. In other words, you have people who thought about what type of person would be a good person. This was theology. Religion in the Middle Ages was seen as something that makes a good person. But eventually, the attitudes shifted, and you see this over time as to what makes a good person as to what makes a good employee. And that's where economists come from, essentially. A great example of this would be St. Augustine's argument that we are all cursed with infinite desire in a finite world, and thus are naturally in competition with each other. This was a theologist who said this argument. Eventually, the same type of arguments will appear in the 17th century with Thomas Hobbes. And again, this would give rise to the development of what an economicist is. Before the Gilded Age, people saw value in workers. 
It was with the rise of robber barons that people saw value in corporations. The greatest difference between the, all of human history and currently is that around the time of the late 1800s, early 1900s, we had what are called robber barons, or people who made an extraordinary amount of wealth in a very, very short period of time. These people were credited with creating jobs, creating a, an economy, creating a market. And as such, people such as Carnegie were seen as people, you know, or Vanderbilt were seen as people who were essentially, you know, someone who is creating more good for the world by funding a corporation. And that is the idea of where corporations have become more beneficial than people. But before this and everything before that time period, everyone saw more value in workers than in a corporation, which is something of a perverse way that we think today. In other words, in today's society, we see as more value in a corporation. The cycle goes something like this. During the 600 BC, man developed the concept of money, and therefore loans became a direct result of this over time. During the Middle Ages, everyone worked and was guided by theology. Uh, work was seen as suffering to build character. You were not an adult until you were in your 30s, and guilds were seen as the original institutions in which we have founded our academic society. So, back in the day, for those of you who don't know, how middle, medieval society worked, or middle ages worked, was you would have a person who grow up, and then when they were about seven or eight years old, they would be a, an apprentice, typically in a type of shop. Most people did this unless they were super wealthy, but in most cases, everyone in society did this until they were in their 30s, which they would eventually be part of a guild and form their own business. It was at that point you were considered an adult, and you could marry, and you could have your own life. But you were not considered an adult until you were in your 30s. Academic institutions saw this as where guilds were organized, and this is the basis for how we found founded academic institutes today. Um, during the rise of the Industrial Revolution, many ideas came about. Some of these ideas are ingrained in our society today. It all stems from a fear that automation would make the poor working class unemployed. If you listen to any sort of conservative or talk radio, essentially it comes down to uh, people fear what will happen if the working class or the poor are not working. What's going to happen if all of a sudden robots take over everyone's jobs? which is why people have been struggling against automation for the past hundred years or so. Um, so you could argue that since the 1950s, this has already happened, and that is why many people in the world today, in the workforce, have bullshit jobs, because society or governments or anyone, really, that is creating a bullshit job is doing so with the idea or express purpose of creating a job for the sake of having a job out there for someone to earn a living. And you could say that many jobs and societies value work over leisure, and anything that is enjoyable should not be paid for. And the current political climate touches on these fears. And there are many different solutions, but if we were to redistribute the wealth, society overall could work less. Um, you know, you look at the people in the United States, for instance, such as people such as Bill Gates, Jeff Be Bezos, who make an absurd amount of money, and you could argue that if they were to take that money and they were to more evenly distribute it, not necessarily take all of it, but just to evenly distribute it more, you know, it would create a more universal basic income. 
So at the end of the book, the most important point I can make about this entire series, and thank you again if you're listening so far, is that the answer to all these problems could come down to a few different suggestions. But the author doesn't like to speculate, but hints at what is called universal basic income as a possible solution. You know, uh, the idea of universal basic income is that everyone, no matter who you are, regardless, receives a stipend or some type of monthly payment or yearly payment that could take care of their basic needs. If everyone in the entire world were to receive this today, or better yet, even just if a one country implemented it, we would see a radical difference in that society. But the idea is that if everyone received that same stipend, you know, or stipend, or if everyone received that same money, there would be a lot less need for certain types of jobs. A great example is someone who is a social worker. Uh, someone who, for instance, uh, deals with children who are being fostered. If the parents of that child in the first place had received a, a stipend of, let's say, $25,000 a year, which is not a lot of money, but that could help them a long way in receiving uh, a sort of income for the basis of supporting themselves. And then the, all the problems that led to a child being fostered in the first place may be irrelevant. The idea being that there's all this sort of regulations and red tape that's been created to create jobs you know, around social work. But if all of a sudden everyone was receiving income, it wouldn't magically solve everything but it would definitely help people a long way. There'd be less mental health issues. There'd be less of a drain on the healthcare system. There'd be less people incarcerated. There'd be less people who are facing you know, evictions. There'd be less people having problems in the world. Because money, you know, as much as I don't want to admit this, money does solve a lot of problems in the world. So, at the end of the book, the author argues for people to discuss and debate this idea. And I think it is a good idea. However, one of the key points that people bring up in this book repeatedly is that they are worried what will happen if everyone is given a universal basic income. People think that all of a sudden, society would just crash to a halt because nobody would do the jobs that nobody wants to do. But I think there's an argument against this. I think that there are some people, for instance, who find meaning in their work, as I said today. Some people even like those bullshit jobs, you could argue, or some people like those shitty jobs. Some people just don't have the time or ability right now to find what works best for them, or what type of career, or what type of place where they belong. But if you were given the opportunity to explore those and develop as more of a person and decide where you need to go instead of worrying about what to put on the table for food, you could argue that there'd be a more productive society. And you could argue this because more people in the world today, if we're given the free time, would be contributing greater you know, causes to society. Society would improve. So that's my argument, at least for it, that if all of a sudden everyone was receiving the same income, there would still be people who would be doing the jobs we don't necessarily want to do uh, because some people typically do enjoy that. And as a result of this, I think... The world would be a much better place today if everyone did receive an income that was universal and the same for everyone. And if you did want to work harder, you can. And if you did want to earn more money on the side, you can. But again, the idea behind it is that if all of your basic needs are met, 
then you as a person can continue to grow and be better and be better educated and maybe even go to a university and get a better education to better yourself, you know, and that's probably the most important thing about society overall is the more educated its people are, the better off it will be. Thank you for listening to my podcast. This is Coffee and Books. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, all these ideas are from the book, Bullshit Jobs. I gave it a five out of five, uh, mainly because it kept me very interested in a topic I think could be potentially boring, but I loved it, and I recommend it to anyone who is interested in reading about our current work climate. And, you know, with the shift in jobs going to being more remote right now because of COVID, I think it takes on an even new and deeper meaning. All right, everyone, thanks again for listening, and have a great New Year's, and have a great day. Bye.